The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning. Good to see you. Good to see you if you're online with us as well. Welcome. Let's turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy, please, as we read one more chapter, one last chapter of this book traditionally called the second giving of the law. God gave Moses the law starting in Exodus 19, Leviticus, and some in Numbers. And then after the 40 years of wilderness wandering, the first generation having passed away, Moses once again gave the law to the people. We see that here. And now Moses is going to Pass off the scene. Chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. I want you to notice that the Lord is using here in Moses uh, language which is somewhat anachronistic. That is, he's giving the names of these places based on what they would become, the tribal names that they had not, they didn't have them actually yet, but they would as soon as the conquest happened. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, in what must have been probably the only occurrence of this or one of very, very few, he, God, buried him, Moses, in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. We often point out that that is a very helpful reality that has prevented a shrine from being set up at that place to worship a man and not his God. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. And so some... Oh, what, 1,300 and some, 1,400 years later, the leaders in Israel go out to the wilderness to talk to a man who's wearing very strange clothing, and they say, are you the prophet? And 
he said, no, I'm not. But there's coming one after me whose sandals I am not worthy to bear, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Lord then showed us this one in the Mount of Transfiguration and he told through the voice from heaven to the disciples, this is my beloved son, hear him. And so this man did not know, uh, this man Jesus did not know God face to face in the exact same way Moses did because Jesus had beheld the face of his father in heaven from whence he had come. And he was the very image and likeness of the invisible God, Hebrews tells us. What a wonderful connection back to the end of Deuteronomy. I was um, reminded yesterday of a book that I have known about for many years. Actually, the author uh, died in 1900, so this is not a new book. But I thought I would share a little bit of it with you in the uh, introduction to the message today. Uh, Holiness is the name of the book by J.C. Ryle. And I was reading in the introduction of that, one of our brothers who used to be in the church here reminded me of it. And I just selected out this little paragraph. He said this, I've had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. Okay, This is not written today. This is written 120 or more years ago. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. The immense importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been too, far too much overlooked. Worldly people sometimes complain with reason that religious persons, in quotes, so-called, are not so amiable and unselfish and good-natured as others who make no profession of religion. Yet sanctification in its place and proportion is quite as important as justification. Sound Protestant and evangelical doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless. It does positive harm. It is despised by keen-sighted and shrewd men of the world, that is, unsaved people, as an unreal and hollow thing and brings religion into contempt. Now, he doesn't quote it here, but he could have quoted easily uh, Peter or, or James that, that tell us that uh, the, the world blasphemes the name of Christ for your pitiful conduct. It is my firm impression that we want, that is, we need, a thorough revival about scriptural holiness. Those old books are treasures. And uh, that's only in the introduction. Just wait until we, uh, if you get it. And by the way, you can get it cheap on Amazon, uh, 99 cents on Kindle. It's worth every of those 99 pennies and your time to read it. But our attention this morning is drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'd turn your Bible there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Last week we looked at some basics about the Lord's table, which is the subject matter of the chapter, or rather the second half of the chapter. We saw that it's an ordinance. We saw what happens during the table. And in fact, we didn't get to all of that detail last week. 
although you might think that we did based on how much I talked on and on about it, but uh, we didn't look really at verses 23 to 26, which is where the institution of the Lord's table is actually specified. And this is really Paul receiving again from the Lord what the Lord had given to the uh, disciples on that night in which he was betrayed. And it says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is one of the most read portions of Scripture. We uh, use it as a summary of what we do at the Lord's table almost every month in this church. And so he institutes, uh, he really shares with the Corinthians how it's to be done and reminds them of the theological meaning of it. Now, the Apostle Paul was not present when the Lord initially gave the instructions to the disciples. You know that, right? Paul was not a believer at that time. He hated Christians. And so he wasn't there in the upper room when this event occurred. But it says, I received from the Lord. That is, he received by direct revelation this matter. In the years after Paul's conversion, you might remember he spent some time called the silent years where we don't know exactly what happened, but we know for some time he spent getting seminary training, as it were, from the best instructor possible, the Lord Jesus Himself. And so he had some quite some revelation about that and I'm sure spent quite a bit of time in his Bible, Hebrew Bible, and receiving new information from the Lord. So, uh, that That is how he passes this on to us. The narration is very simple. We can read about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, mainly those passages. We don't see so much of it in John. But the Lord took each element, took the bread, took the cup, gave thanks for them both, and uh, distributed them to the disciples to partake. And he told them about the meaning of those elements. Uh, Jesus said that this bread is my body, by which he obviously meant it's a symbol of the body that was sitting before them, reclined at the table for them to participate uh, in this element. So it was about to be his body, that is literal body, it was about to be broken in death for them because of sin. Then in turn, the cup after supper represents his blood poured out in that death. We often must remind ourselves that whenever the Bible talks about blood, it talks it really is talking about life, isn't it? Somebody's life blood being poured out and that person losing their life because they don't have the blood to carry the life. The life is in the blood as the scripture says. It doesn't he doesn't have the, the blood then to carry the life throughout his body and so he passes away. That's what happened to the Lord. He was severely beaten and put on a cross and bled and died there on the cross. So the meaning of the table is clear. Despite all the arguments of, of the centuries over the meaning of these elements, uh, it's not mystical, it's not magical, it's not sacramental, it's not a, uh, you know, a, a supernatural thing where uh, the elements somehow turn into the body and blood of Christ. There's none of that. That's, that's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with what the Lord's words were. 
And these are a remembrance. Partaking of them demonstrates, as we said last time, our participation and our connection with Jesus, our Savior. Whenever we do this, verse 26 tells us, this ritual, this rite, this religious activity, what we're doing is making known the truth that Jesus died for sinners. You see that in verse 26. If you let your eyes look down there at 26, you see that he says, when you do this, as often as you do, whenever, at whatever time, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Yes, we do believe that the Lord died. We do believe that He died for sinners, such as myself and yourself. We do believe also that He rose again from the dead, literally, bodily, to uh, demonstrate that our justification was complete, according to Romans 4.25. So we continue to do this until when? He comes. Okay? Till He returns. So we also believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. As fantastical as our worldly friends would think that is, it's not very fantastic to us in the sense of fantasy. It's fantastic that it's going to come, but it's not a fantasy because He came once already. Why should it surprise you that He'll come a second time when He made great promises that He would do that? So that really finishes up what we looked at last time. And now we turn to some... um, Well, more serious matters, I'll say. We looked at the basics. We looked at how it's observed. We looked at the problems in Corinth. How Paul could not praise them for their behavior there. Now we're going to look at the right way and the wrong way to remember the Lord's table. We start with the wrong way, which is where the Apostle Paul starts in verse 27. So let me read 27 to the end of the chapter. And you be putting your thinking cap on and really doing business with this text. 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so, that is, that word so there should be in that manner, let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Alright, so we begin on our notes if you're following along there, page 1. Under Roman numeral 4, that is not a mistake, that is picking up from last time, numeral 3 in part 1. Here we are in part 2. So therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner or unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. This is definitely the wrong way to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at uh, the, the verse there, it says, in an unworthy manner, in my translation. That is a very good translation. Maybe you have a, a version that says unworthily. That's a bit um, obtuse to our modern use in English. You don't hear many people say unworthily, unless it's in this context. But we don't use it too much, although it is correct, unworthily, because it's an adverb. 
Notice the structure of the text. Whoever eats or drinks unworthily or in an unworthy manner. Whoever is the subject, eat and drink are the verbs. Unworthily is the adverb that modifies the eating and the drinking. So, unworthily or unworthy does not refer to the person partaking at the table. Now, you might ask, why are you making a big deal about this? And for the next five or ten minutes, why are you going to make a big deal about this? Because some people have taken this verse that we use often in our Lord's table services and twisted it around to make it sound like we're saying, you are unworthy to be at the table. And, in contradiction to that, they say, Christ has made you worthy, so there's no reason to even talk about worthy or unworthy. Okay, are you with me? But that's not what the text talks about. The text talks about people who are Christ's taking in an unworthy manner these elements. Now, we conclude from this that unworthy refers to the manner of eating and drinking, not the type or quality of the person. The word unworthy does not deal with our spiritual condition as sinners because, listen, we all are unworthy. We must have a humble opinion of ourselves this way. This is true. We are all unworthy of any of the benefits of salvation. That stands for when we were born, the moment we were born, to the moment we die. Before we were saved, after we're saved. In heaven, we won't be able to say, I am worthy. Who will we say is worthy? Worthy is the Lamb. For all eternity, worthy is the Lamb that was slain, who made us kings and priests before our God. Worthy is He, not worthy is me. We are all sinners. None of us comes to the table as perfect. Past, perfect, present, perfect, or future perfect. We just come just like we come to salvation. You know, we don't come to salvation as pre-renewed or reformed people. You know, you don't tell somebody who is a sinner, okay, clean up all of your sin and then God will save you. <laughs> it's an utter impossibility for you to clean up your sin until God is in you through His Spirit. Then you can chip away at that at the addiction or, or those desires, those lusts, those different things that you have that need to, to go away, those, those thoughts and attitudes and all of that. You don't come to salvation pre-reformed or pre-renewed. The whole point of mankind's need of salvation is that we are unworthy. The table reminds us of the same. Though we are unworthy in that sense, God invites us to come anyway on the worthiness or the merit of Jesus Christ. This text doesn't talk about that, what I just talked about. We're just dealing with what the whole Bible says about us as, as sinners and as then subsequently saved people. Humility, folks, humility. We must not think of ourselves higher than we are. This passage is talking about something else. It refers to the manner of eating and drinking of anybody who comes to the table, no matter how 
spiritually mature they may be, no matter how spiritually declined they may be, or immature, or new in the faith. Look at a person who is new in the faith can come to the table and benefit and enjoy from it just as much as a person who's been a believer for 50 years. You can have been a believer for five minutes or 50 years. It doesn't matter. You're not more or less worthy, as it were, of partaking of the table. It's the manner in which you come. Now, wrestle with this. Wrestle with this. Whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, it means something. Right? What does it mean? You can't just ignore it. You can't just say, well, Christ has made me worthy, so it's impossible for me to be guilty of being unworthy. No, it's not. It is very possible for us to be guilty of behaving in an unworthy manner at the table. So don't ignore it. You cannot just come to celebrate this ordinance of the Lord any way you please. And it's very important to understand this because you remember what we read about the penalty that was associated with doing this in an unworthy manner? Most of us don't like to get to be weak. We certainly don't like to be sick and perish the thought about perishing. You know, but that's what happened in the church in Corinth. Problems like that. Very severe. So to these subjects we now turn our attention. What exactly is the unworthy manner and what is the punishment for it? So we must derive our understanding of the unworthy manner from the text of Scripture. And I'm going to give you five elements or thoughts that have to do with this. Because it's been, it's been kind of confused, uh, unfortunately, in the minds of people. Either we just we don't know what it means, or we kind of think we do, or we, we kind of tag it to one particular aspect of coming to the table. So, for instance, many people treat the, the Lord's table like their time of confession when they come like you would go to a, a priest and make your confession, right? So, every month you've got to go to confession, and then you have the Lord's table to somehow renew your spiritual life. This passage says nothing about that. Okay? Now, the Lord's table is a very fine opportunity for you to come and have some quiet moments to pray and confess sin that you haven't confessed or haven't dealt with honestly before the Lord. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying that that's not the focus of this passage. So I'll, I'll probably allude to that again as we go through. But the text itself in chapter 11 gives us plenty of information here. First of all, the first way that you can take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner is if the church has divisions in it. In a divided manner, look at verse 17 in the context. Remind yourself again. He says in verse 18, When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Verse 19, there also must be factions among you. So the divisions were of a certain sort in the church. We saw this last time. Do you remember how the church was divided up? You had the rich and the poor. You had the haves and the have-nots. The rich were taking much while the poor were given nothing. In fact, it should be the other way around, right? The rich should be giving and the poor should be receiving. That's how it works because God from the very beginning has taught us, you know, when you when you get too much manna, you share it with your neighbor so that you don't have too much. And that person that doesn't have enough will not have too little because you've shared with them. 
So, the divisions were maintained in the church in a very sinful manner. They were divided based on social standing, socioeconomics. Some, as I said last time, I think were slaves in the church. Uh, others were, were freedmen or those of higher standing. But in the church, there's no division based on social standing. No division based on social standing. I'll just make a just an off-the-cuff illustration. You could have a church that has high-powered businessmen in it and um, you know guys that work with their hands and, and have grease under their fingernails. And some of those guys with grease under their fingernails might just make much better deacons than those high-flying businessmen in the church. You know what I'm saying? Because of their spiritual maturity. Uh, in other words, roles can be reversed. Those that are, that are exalted will be humbled and those that are humbled will be exalted. It could be that way. But there's really no social economic division in the church. But they had that. So if you're emphasizing that in your church, then you're partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy and a divided manner. Now, Paul wasn't there. He was many miles away. And so it must have been evident to the entire church that were regularly present at the meetings. There's no excuse for this on their part. I mean, think of think if if people 500 miles away knew that there was some awful division in our assembly, how shameful would that be? How shameful would that be? But the news had traveled that far. There was no excuse. The ringleaders were judged. The entire church was culpable to make sure that this did not continue to happen. So, the first way that you can partake in an unworthy manner is to be divided. To be divided. Secondly, related to that, you can partake in an unworthy manner, verse 20 and 21, by being selfish. Look at 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in, each, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. Well, whenever you see each one taking for themselves, each one wanting, each one partaking, and others not, then you know you have selfishness going on. Some believers were taking food ahead of others, not leaving any for the rest. Some were drunk, in fact. Drunkenness has got to be one of the highest forms of selfishness, doesn't it? I want to feel good, and I don't care what it makes me do or how it makes me look to other people or whatever. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Drunkenness. The remembrance table became a meal and the meal became a feast and the feast had become a drunken party in Corinth. This excess has led Christians over the years to just exclude the meal part altogether. It's unfortunate, but it's better than falling into self-centered sin like the Corinthians. So, you can partake in an unworthy manner by being divided, by being selfish, and in verse 22, you can partake in an unworthy manner by being by despising others. Look at verse 22. He says, "Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? You know, take care of your hunger and stuff at home, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing?" Disgracing the poor. You poor people don't belong with us. You're on the outside. We're on the inside. The rich people were doing, were saying. And so, unworthy. Despising and shaming the church. Fourthly, now this is, I'm drawing this from kind of a 
collection of the thoughts here. Fourthly, this seems all to indicate that the memorial service was being treated irreverently. Irreverently. Divided, despising, selfish, shaming, and irreverently. Now turn back in your Bible to Leviticus 10. I'm making a connection here that you might wonder what what is this connection? Leviticus chapter 10. The connection that I'm intending for us to get with this cross-reference is this. The Lord's table is a service of worship. It is the one service of worship which is most detailed in the New Testament. I mean, God doesn't tell us, you know, like how to lead your singing or how to what part of the service to read your Bible or all that, but he specifically gives us instructions on the Lord's table, doesn't he? As often as you do this and there's penalties attached to doing it wrongly and all of this, I mean, our our little antennas ought to perk up and say, "Wait a minute, God wants us to pay attention to this. There's some specific instructions here." The same kind of situation prevailed in Leviticus. There was very specific instruction for how to operate around the tabernacle. And when that was not followed, there were some serious problems to pay for the people who did that. Look at Leviticus 10. When you take the Lord's, when you take the Lord's instructions about worship and you just dismiss them, watch out. Leviticus 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered, here it is, profane fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. My friends, people who mistreat the Lord's table need to perk up their attention. I mean, people that treat it lightly, irreverently, despising others, dividing in the church, even even changing the elements or the meaning of the elements in effect. They died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people, I must be glorified. This That's telling you the bottom line. You people, you, you, your sons Nadab and Abihu, did not honor and revere God before the people. And God is not going to take that. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan and the sons of Eziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. So they're going to bury these guys. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not cover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. I should say, after that happened, you would probably listen to God's representative and say, okay, Moses, whatever you say, we're not going to go anywhere near that door because we aren't leaving this place. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, And here's what I think was happening with Nadab and Abihu. Why did they do so poorly? Profane worship. Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. See, they they got drunk and they thought we're going to go and just, you know, irreverently offer some worship before God. And they found out what happened. 
It shall be a statute, Moses said, forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Boy, very powerful message there for ministers, both in the Old Testament and I take it in the New. No alcohol. Okay? No alcohol. Why? What's an, let me give you an illustration. Any time of the day or night, especially late at night it seems, somebody calls with some kind of issue they want to talk over with the pastor. What's the pastor going to do if he's sloshed? What if he's buzzed? What kind of judgment is he going to have? You have to be always ready. And I think it applies to believers as well. You know, Keep yourself clean. Keep yourself separate from the world. That's just one argument. We've talked about that issue before, but you certainly don't show up to the church, you know, like some of these some of these crazy airline pilots that show up to work drunk. What do they think? They're going to be out in the street as quick as you can imagine. We can't be doing that, friends. We cannot be treating the Lord's worship services in an unworthy kind of way. Irreverence had a big penalty and a price to pay. Think about Ananias and Sapphira, for example. They come worshiping through giving and they had made a representation that they sold a piece of property, say, for $100,000 and they're going to give all $100,000 to the church to distribute to the poor. And Peter knew they lied. I mean, he knew right off they had lied. I don't know how he knew. Did he look up on the assessor's website what the price actually was? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. He knew. God revealed it to him. So Ananias and Sapphira, they died. Because God was going to, he was making an example for the rest of the church for the next 2,000 years. You don't mess around with the church. You don't mess around with the work of God. You don't treat it irreverently. And well, the people experienced fear falling upon them. And uh, that was a serious moment in the church history. Well, that was irreverence. Then finally, 2 Corinthians 11 again, or 1 Corinthians 11 rather again, if you look over at verse 28, you get another and fifth way in which the table can be taken in an unworthy manner. By, by reverse here. So, Paul says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, my point here is to say, if you come to the table in an unexamined manner, it's going to be just like a divided manner, a selfish manner, a despising manner, an irreverent manner, an unexamined manner. The solution to the, all of this is that each one makes sure that they're not participating in those kinds of sins. Ask yourself, am I being selfish, divisive, despising, shaming, irreverent when I'm coming to this table? Am I just coming, kind of sauntering in, sit down, let's get this service over with, give me those elements, I'm a believer, I'm out of here. That's not the attitude of a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of it. Behold, my friends, the man upon the cross. Behold the sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame. Your grief and your shame weighed down. Scornfully surrounded. Thorns his only crown. And you're going to come and treat the table of the Lord in an irreverent manner for the Christ who died for your sins? I think not. I think not. 
Of course, that time before the Lord is also a perfect time to examine your whole life in any department, in any way in which you need to make confession. Go for it. Do that. But make sure that you're not coming to the table in an unworthy manner as we've specified here in this chapter. So, do we have divisions? Perhaps hidden divisions? Do we have bitterness at others in the assembly because of perhaps political issues or any other kind of issues? Maybe we're despising others in our hearts or in our practice. Are we selfish? Are we shaming others? Do we examine ourselves? Before you come, make sure those things are well taken care of. Now, when you have, this, is, this is all how the sin was done in Corinth. Now, there are two, two further steps when you've done sin. Okay? Sin is like a crime. Okay? So what happens after the crime has been found out? Well, now you, you, you go through the process and you find out, okay, yes, he's guilty. He's guilty. Objectively guilty. That means now you carry guilt with you. Guilt is the liability to punishment. Then what do you have? Then you have the punishment itself. Okay? You have the thing done. Then you have the guilt that comes from that thing. And then you have the punishment that comes from that guilt. So, let's go through that quick process here. What about the guilt of this sin? How does it offend God's holiness when you or anyone else partakes of the table in an unworthy manner according to this text? And the text of the Bible says this. Here's how it boils down. You are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord and you're guilty of not discerning the Lord's body. Let's see, where are those in the text? Verse 29, He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And in verse 27, just back up two verses, if it's in an unworthy manner, he will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Again, you're wrestling in your mind. What does it mean to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? What does it mean to not discern those, the body, discern Christ? So here's, here's what it means very briefly. Those who are in the faction are guilty of sinning against Christ in his very work on the cross. They're saying, what's the big deal? We're just eating and drinking. Mm-mm-mm-mm. You are sinning against Christ. Maybe you don't understand all that. You don't have to understand that. Just know this. If you sin against Christ, that's not good. That is not good. You need to stay away from there. And secondly, they are guilty of not evaluating or correctly thinking. That's what the word discerning means. Discerning the body of Christ, the church. If they were discerning it properly... Remember, this came from 29, not discerning the Lord's body. If they discerned it properly, they would not be treating it so cavalierly. This is the body of sheep that Christ has redeemed for Himself. And I am going to treat some of them like trash. This is the Lord's church. This isn't your social club. Okay? This isn't, this doesn't have levels of membership where, you know, you pay the higher amount to get the, the goods. And if you can't pay much, then you just get the scraps. That's not the church. Not discerning the Lord's body means not discerning the, the church as His body. 
So once you have sinned, then you have guilt. What's the liability now to punishment? What, what, is, what, are, what are you opening yourself up for? The, the punishment or the judgment. And it says that in verse 30. Many are weak and sick and many sleep. Now, I don't have any particular illustrations of that for you. I doubt if I did, if I would give names right now in a public setting or with the recording going on. But the Scriptures tell us, and I'm certain that it's happened over the course of church history, that people have suffered these punishments for their misdeeds. Now, not necessarily immediately. Not necessarily immediately. Who would be the people that would be subject to this, by the way? I think it would be only true believers who are misusing the Lord's table. God doesn't, quote-unquote, discipline those who don't belong to Him. They will get their comeuppance at the appropriate time in in that day, in the final judgment. But this would be for believers who are mistreating the Lord's table. Now, and this, so obviously this is very serious. Death. So in what measure and exactly to whom did God dole out this uh, punishment is not detailed. All Paul says is many are weak and a considerable number. I think it says many two times in most of your translations, but it's not the same Greek word. Many are sick, weak and sick and a sufficient number. A, a substantial, considerable number of you have died Now, we don't know the size of the church. It could have been like this size. How many people, after having partaken of the Lord's table on a Sunday over the course of the next weeks passing away, how many people would that have to be in our church for you to think a considerable number of people are dying in our church? It doesn't have to be too many before your attention is gotten. And you say, wait a minute. These people were perfectly fine. And now they're gone. What's going on here? So it doesn't have to be a whole lot of people for it to be a considerable number of deaths in the church. So may God keep us from that kind of behavior that would would open us to this kind of guilt and then punishment. Now look at verse 32, would you please? Because some people, especially those from the outside or those who haven't heard this before, would say, why does God do that? Why, why this? It sounds so harsh. Well, two points. One, it sounds harsh because we don't know God's holiness well enough. You see, we wouldn't think it's so harsh if we knew how holy God is. Does that make sense? You just don't have the, you don't have the, the conviction of the weight of God's holiness, so therefore you think it's, it's a little extreme how God has handled this situation here. You won't know extreme until you see God. And you'll know, you'll know what I'm talking about then. Every example in the Bible of somebody who sees God falls down as dead, the only reason they can stay alive is because God strengthens them and allows them to do that. But also, God is not doing this in a merely retributive fashion. When I say retributive, retribution, think kind of negative. You know, it's not just like a, it's not just like slamming somebody or getting revenge on them or just mere punishment, here it is in verse 32, when we are judged, which is what that was, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Sometimes God has to lay people flat on their back in order to get their attention so that they have some time to think 
about what is happening to them or around them or in their spiritual life. So he is doing this with a, a positive purpose in mind. He is doing this to train and discipline his people so that we would not be judged with the world. That's a merciful thing, isn't it? That God would not judge us with the world. What's going to happen when the world is judged? It's not going to be a good scene. They're going to be judged according to their works, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, and they're going to be found wanting and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. So the Bible tells us that God uses this kind of judgment to purify His people, to avoid us being condemned with the world. He uses these kinds of passages to say, okay, here's the line. Now, how close to the line do you want to get? Well, I don't want to get too close to that line. So I'm going to stay away from there. I'm going to make sure that I'm maybe a little even overly careful about coming to the Lord's table and treating the worship of the Lord properly. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that God is in the business of chastening His own children. He disciplines us in peaceable fruit in the end. And that's what we look for and hope for. So, thus we hear the Word of the Lord. That's all about the wrong way to observe the Lord's table. With some of the right way mixed in, I guess. And here we now look at the right way. Just a couple of points under this. Number one in verse 28, what's the right way to partake of the Lord's table? It's to examine yourself and in that manner eat and drink of the cup. So, I've often said this and I I, I keep saying it because I think it bears repeating. We forget sometimes. Should I come to the table today? Uh, Should I participate? Well, my answer is by default... Yes, if you're examining yourself because that's the right manner to come to the table. If, it's, if, you know, if you've got something that you haven't taken care of with a fellow brother or sister or some, one of these problems we've talked about and you need to take care of and there's, you've got to do it, no time to do it before uh, the Lord's table, next table service comes and you know, very well, good idea to hold yourself back. Okay, If you have unconfessed sin in your life and you're walking displeasing to the Lord, hold yourself back. You want to be careful about this. But generally, remember, nobody perfect comes to the table of the Lord. When you have the elements on there, representing the body and blood of Christ, offered for us because we're sinners. That's why we're there at the table, because we're sinners. We wouldn't be there if we didn't need to have that remembrance of the Lord's work and death for us. So, be examining yourself. Checking for sin. Checking for self-deception. Checking for mistreatment of others. Checking for despising and shaming and selfishness and divisions. All those things that we talked about a few moments ago. Hopefully, you will find that you're in your self-examination. You're not part of a clicked up church. I say clicked up. A church with a bunch of cliques in it. Rich and poor and all this sort of thing. Uh, conservatives and liberals and whatever. Um, so even though this is the issue we're talking about, self-examination, it's not, and, and these issues of, of division and unworthy manner, you can also examine your whole life and the whole range of issues in your life that you should consider before coming to the table. And there's other ways than this. 
in chapter 11 to mistreat the body of Christ. There are other sins that can cloud the testimony of Christ in the life of the church. These things are the subjects of our self-examination. So, as we walk with the Lord and we fill our minds with His Word, the Spirit of God will help our consciences to understand those sorts of things and help us to cleanse them out of our lives. Okay, So, if you worried like, oh, if I come to the table... And I'm examining myself, but maybe there's some hidden sin that I don't know about and God's going to zap me for it. Don't think like that because God is merciful. And He already knows that none of us knows all of our sin. It's utterly impossible because we're finite and we're sinful creatures and, and have a measure of deception, self-deception even sometimes. And, and so God knows that. But if you're coming with the attitude of, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. I don't want to have anything to do with these things that the Corinthians were dealing with in their church. Keep me far from those things. Search me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That attitude is the self-examining attitude that pleases God. That itself, in turn, is what Paul says in 31. He calls it, Judging ourselves. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Judgment is an evaluation. It's um, an introspection here, a self-evaluation. And it brings about a, 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 uh, either a condemnation or an acquittal in our conscience. Okay? That's what the conscience does. It helps you decide... Was that right or was that wrong? Okay, it's not, it's not the little guy on this shoulder and the little guy on this shoulder. Those are actually pictures of what our conscience is. Talking to us. Telling us, oh, you did that wrong. That wasn't right. You need to apologize for that and so on. By doing so, we're judging ourselves and avoiding what? Boy, there's a world of difference between the active voice of judge and the passive voice of be judged. The active is... I'm doing it to myself. The passive is somebody else is doing it to me. Who's that? The outside judgment seems to be from the Lord. And so it should be easy to understand why you don't want to go through with that. You want to take care of your judgment yourself. It's almost like the Lord leaves it to us. But if we don't take care of it, He'll take care of it. You know, he, he gives us a little bit of rope. He gives us a little bit of, of uh, latitude. But after a while, like he did with the, the Canaanites, you know, their iniquity was not yet full. But when it came full, chop, it wasn't a good scene. So for us, let us judge. Let's keep those, as we say, short accounts. Don't let those things run on and on and on and, and be uh, overdrawn, as it were, overdue. The Lord could implement His judgment upon you by uh, using another brother or the church body to tell you you're not fit to participate at the table. He could use your conscience to help you to understand that or He could make you weak or sick or cause you to pass away if you run off that far from Him. So, this is, this is, this is difficult for us. I mean, and it's difficult for us as a church to be involved in helping each other judge ourselves 
or to even tell other people, look, don't participate. But it's a ministry that helps us to help unrepentant sinners to see afresh their need for guidance. So if somebody is, is, has been uh, removed from the membership of this church and they were to come to me and say, yeah, I know I've been removed, but I'd like to participate at the table because it's been a long time since I've been at the table, I would say, no, you're not welcome. Now, if you come and you show that you've repented of your sin and you give good evidence of that, we rejoice and welcome you with open arms to participate in the Lord's table. But you can't come in unrepentance and say, you know, uh, you guys have no control over that table and those elements. Well, that's actually not true according to Scripture. We're commanded to protect, put a fence around that thing and make sure that it's not mistreated or handled irreverently. Now, the, the summary of Paul's instructions, there are three of them. He tells the church, get rid of your divisions. Verse 33, when you come together, wait for one another. It's just a short way of saying, look, get rid of those divisions that you have. Wait for one another. Be courteous. Satisfy your hunger at home, number two. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. And thirdly, Paul says, when I come, I will set the rest in order. Now that sounds a little ominous to my ear. Okay. Uh, yeah, the uh, the apostle is going to come, and I gave a couple of illustrations in the in the Bible, Acts 13, where he judged somebody on the spot and caused them to fall into blindness. How did he do that by supernatural divine power? That's not a frequent activity, but it was something that was done. And so he tells the Corinthians, "Look, do you want me to come with kind of peace?" Or do you want me to bring my rod with me and you know whoop a few of you that aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing? Supernaturally speaking, of course. Um, so, there's no question to us that the Lord's table is serious. It's important. It's to be held reverently in the church. The Bible gives us a lot of instruction here to avoid offending God. There may be a lot of latitude in various areas of church life and how we do things, but in this... I think we better follow that pattern pretty closely and avoid those sins that he's talking about there in the Lord's table. And it's, a, it's, a, it's too bad of a thing in my mind if you think about how it is in general that people can take the good gifts of God and twist them around into some ugly, contorted, sinful thing. And that happened in Corinth with the Lord's table. The table which represents the beautiful priceless work of Christ. And they have taken that and turned it about to make it ugly and make it a matter of divine judgment. Let us not do that in our churches, beloved. In our church, nor in our sister churches or in the churches around the world, the missionary churches we support, let us treat the Lord's table with the reverence that it is due because it is the Lord's and it's the Lord's work. Let's pray. Father, this is just basic teaching. It's not entertainment. It's not fluff. It is called for our highest attention and our most careful observation to understand what You wish for us at the Lord's table. And so, Lord, we commend to You this message and the results of it in our hearts. May it result in our church being a more reverent, 
more unified, more holy assembly before the Lord our God. May the next time we partake of the table be that much more special and that much more honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.